Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. It is Saturday, August 27th, 2011. I almost said 2012, right? That would, that would be funny. Nah, nah, it'll be here soon enough. Tonight I'm going to present Broken Cisterns, a paper I wrote in, um, a, a, a set of papers I wrote in either 2004, if, if I had to guess, or maybe 2005. Clifton might know better than me, but um, I'm not going to chase him to to find out for me. First, I want to say that um, I received the first copy today of the updated Christogenian New Testament, and and um, hopefully it, it it looks good to me. I, I mean, I think I did everything right according to Lulu's um, the the instructions that they have posted on the website. If it meets the specifications that are required, it should be listed on Barnes and Nobles and Amazon.com and other major bookstores and, and book distributors catalogs. But within four to six weeks, that process, according to Lulu, takes four to six weeks to complete. They have to check the book first, and, and then I guess they um, they roll the ball on that. Hopefully, it'll be done sooner. And, and you'll be able to purchase the Christogenian New Testament at, at one of those major book distributors, right? It would still probably be cheaper if you ordered it at Lulu. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some kind of um, markup involved in dealing with the bookstore chains, right? And, and I really did try to keep the, the price under $32. Under $30, the... Um, well, when I revised the, the edition, it, the, the first edition had sold for $26 and change, and Lulu wanted to up that to $32 and change. But I have it listed as a, at a 10% discount right now so that it, it would stay under $30. I will probably leave the discount in place through the end of the year. And... and um. Uh, I know. Well, if Lulu lets me get away with that for that long, right? But but it's listed right now, and and it's still under. It's twenty nine oh two, I think, is the retail price of it at Lulu dot com, and and it's it's basically the same volume. It just has a few changes to satisfy Lulu's requirements so that I could list it in the major bookstore chains, and and that's to have my name on a front cover, which I really didn't want, but. It's one of their requirements, and to have the ISBN number on the title page are the two main requirements. And and since I had to change the um, the PDF file to do that, I also updated the translation, the, the the text itself from the errata on the errata page at Christogenia. The the errors and type typographical errors errors that we found. I say we because I haven't found many of them. The errors and typographical errors that readers have informed me of over the past six or eight months. So, so hopefully soon it will be available at bookstore chains. But, but I would still get it from Lulu because I think it'll it'll remain to be a little less expensive there. Um, the, the only difference is that if you could order it at a Barnes and Nobles, if you have one nearby, then you wouldn't have to pay the shipping. But the markup would probably commensurate with that, I would guess. I don't know how much bookstores mark up books, but I'm sure they'll mark it up a few dollars.
Okay, with that said, this, this is um, Broken Cisterns. I had written this paper that there was a friend in prison who, who um, had come to me one day, and he was learning identity, and he pointed out Proverbs chapter 5, where it says, drink waters out of thine own cistern. And, and he pointed that passage out to me, and, and um, uh, of course, I had read it before, but, but years before, probably. He pointed that passage out to me, Dave Holland, and, and he discussed its meanings concerning the, the importance of racial purity. And he realized, reading Proverbs chapter 5 from verse 15, that this this proverb had everything to do with marrying somebody of your own race. And, and I commended him for that because he was catching on to the identity message when he noticed that. And, and that's, a, um, that, that's a very good sign that he was getting it, right? Well, well Dave did get it, and, and um, he's a good guy. And, and he has, for the, you know, maybe he's not a, a, a Bible scholar, but he has read his Bible and he has stayed with it. And, and this, um, if I wrote this in 2004 or 2005, it seems like a world away, right? Well, well um, after I published the first, the, the first Broken Sisters, after Clifton published it, actually, the, the, um, one of Clifton's proofreaders pointed out the importance of a passage in Charles Lehman's commentary on the New Testament concerning Hosea chapter 4, which fit in very well with what we said in Broken Cisterns part 1. So, so that's why, that, the, that and, and that was done during the proofreading process, so I knew right away that there would be a Broken Cisterns part 2, and, and left it at that, right? So, so here they are. I'm going to present them tonight. I'm going to expound on them where I think that they should be expounded on, or where I think to expound on them as I present them. And, and that way I'll have um, the Broken Cistern papers in the podcast that, that, that hopefully will be shared far and wide. We in Israel identity, who understand the importance of racial purity, read passages such as those found in Jeremiah chapter 2 or in Ezekiel chapter 16, and we understand that the prophets are describing not only religious apostasy, but also fornication, fornication which is race mixing, sexual intercourse with other kinds. Jude 7, the apostle says that fornication is the pursuit of, in the King James, strange flesh. That word strange is the Greek word heteros, like in heterosexual or somebody of another sex, right? Heteros means other or different. Fornication is the pursuit of somebody of different flesh, for sexual reasons. Now, there are other things that are considered fornication. That is one of them. Yet the mainstream sects, all of which are generally universalist now, and even people who claim to be Christian identity but are really universalists, such as Stephen Jones and Dave Barley, and I've taken these men to task for this personally. I've corresponded with them over this personally, so I don't mind mentioning their names publicly because they sure as hell would not heed to sound doctrine when I talk to them about it personally. These men would have us believe that these chapters 
aren't about sex at all, but rather they are about spiritual fornication or spiritual adultery. And they have only a religious significance. What many people, many so-called Bible scholars, don't understand or they fail to investigate or perhaps other Bible scholars surely know but won't admit, and some of them do seem to purposely conceal the truth, is that many of the ancient pagan religious cults are all about sex, especially the cults of Baal and Ashtaroth. Once we see that sex, the act of sex, was a primary component of the so-called religious worship of these cults, then we can fully comprehend just what Jeremiah and Ezekiel and many of the other prophets are saying when they say things such as this. And I will quote Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. For of all time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. In other words, Yahweh set Israel free to do what they wished. He took them out of bondage in Egypt, right? And now said, I will not transgress. That's what we said in, the, in Exodus chapters 19 through 24 when we were given when our ancestors were given the law. And now said, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then are thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Well, only through race mixing. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh Elohim. The only sin that we can't wash off is the sin of race mixing. Your mongrelized children will never wash off their brown or black skin or high yellow. How can thou say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after valleying? See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways, a wild ass, used to the wilderness that snuffs up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. But thou said, There is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will go. So we see the turning in to the degenerate plant of a strange vine. The washing with soap and not being able to wash off one's sin is directly connected to the love of strangers. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty. I'm sorry, I'm quoting a different passage here. I will also quote Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 15, 16, 25, and 26. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and played the harlot because of thy renown and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou did take, and deckest thy high places with diverse colors, and played the harlot thereupon. 
this imagery is going to be very important when we talk about the nature of the pagan religions in, in the minutes to come. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast built thy high place at the head of every way, and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred, and hast opened thy feet, which is basically the way we would say thou hast spread thy legs to everyone that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh. I might say that that's probably an allegory for well hung. And has increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Herodotus writes of Bel, or Baal, whom the Greeks equated with their god Zeus and the sacred precinct of that idol in Babylon. And I quote Herodotus, Book 1, Chapter 182. On the topmost tower there is a spacious temple, and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned, with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place, nor is the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman who, as the, the, the Chaldeans, the priests of this god, affirm, is chosen for himself, meaning the god chose this woman, by the deity out of all the women of the land. The god chose this woman for himself, out of all the women of the land. This is what the priests were telling these women, right? Herodotus goes on to relate an identical practice which occurred at Thebes in Egypt, in the temple of, quote-unquote, Theban Zeus, the god which the Greeks equated with Theban, with Zeus, who, who was called Amon by the Egyptians. Now, it should be common sense to most men, Christian and otherwise, that Bel, or Baal himself, certainly did not appear each night to some woman in this temple in Babylon. And even Herodotus said of this, and I quote, from that same passage, much to his, I'm sorry, much, much to Herodotus' credit, but I, for my part, do not credit it that the God comes down in person. Evidently, as Herodotus was inferring, some man must have entered into these chambers at night and had sex with this chosen woman. And quite possibly, it was some man pretending to be Baal. And Tertullian, another early, an early Christian writer, a historian in his own right, Tertullian, the second century defender of the Christian faith, writes this, Then if I add, and the conscience of every man of you will recognize it as readily, if I add that in the temples, meaning the pagan temples, adulteries are arranged, that between the altars, the pander's trade is plied. The pander meaning somebody that we would call the pimp today, right? That commonly, in the very vestries of temple keeper and priest, under those same holy fillets, crowns, and purple garments, we see the pagan priests dress themselves much up, up much like Catholic bishops, right? Or, or quite the opposite. While the incense burns, lust is gratified. That comes from Tertullian's Apology, Book 15, Chapter 7. Tertullian is telling us the same thing that Herodotus told us 
almost 650 years before Tertullian that these pagan temples were basically places of prostitution. Bell worship was where prostitution, where pimps, the priests operated as pimps, conned these unsuspecting women into sleeping with a god and fixed up some guy that, that needed this, that, that, that thought he needed this, that this sexual gratification, who paid to have this woman and he posed as their god. That's what was going on. That is Baal worship, or a part of it. Baal is mentioned several times in Judges and in Samuel, along with another pagan deity, the goddess Ashtoreth. And we see in Babylon, we see Ishtar is... It is the goddess of love, right, and fertility. And, and we see them mentioned in Judges chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 6, 1 Samuel chapter 7, 12, 1 Kings chapter 11, 2 Kings chapter 23. They, their names occur frequently in Scripture. Herodot is called the Temple of Ashtaroth, which is also spelled Astarte, A-S-T-A-R-T-E in secular literature. And one may compare 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 10 with Josephus's antiquities in corresponding passages to see that Ashtaroth in the Bible is a start in Josephus. Herodotus called the temple of Astarte in Ashkelon the temple of celestial Aphrodite, as we now see that Ashtaroth, or Astarte, was called Aphrodite, by the Greeks. Astarte was called Ishtar by the Babylonians, and Herodotus used an Assyrian name discussing the same idol, where he says this, and, and this is a passage from Herodotus's Histories, Book 1, Chapter 199. The Babylonians have one most shameful custom, that now by saying that, Herodotus was evidently a man of sensible morals, right? because he understood this was a shameful, a most shameful custom. Herodotus was a Dorian Greek by race. The Babylonians have one most shameful custom. Every woman born in the country must once in her life go, go and sit down in the precinct of Aphrodite and there consort with a stranger. Many of the wealthier sort, the wealthier women, who are too proud to mix with the others, drive in covered carriages to the precinct. The precinct was the area around the temple, right? Followed by a goodly train of attendants, and there they take their station. But the larger number seat themselves within the holy enclosure with wreaths of string around their heads. And here there is always a great crowd, some coming and others going. Lines of cord. This is important because we're going to see the same description in, in the apocryphal epistles of Jeremiah in, in just, a few, uh, just, just a few paragraphs, right? And here there is always a great crowd, some coming and some others going, lines of cord, marked out paths 
in all directions among the women, and the strangers pass along them to make their choice. A woman who has once taken her seat is not allowed to return home till one of the strangers throws a silver coin into her lap and takes her with him beyond the holy ground. When he throws the coin, he says these words, The goddess Mylita prosper thee. Aphrodite is called Mylita by the Assyrians, or was called Mylita by the Assyrians. The silver coin, Herodotus says, may be of any size. It cannot be refused, for that is forbidden by the law. Since once thrown, it is sacred. The woman goes with the first man who throws her money and rejects no one. When she has gone with him and so satisfied the goddess, as they believed, she returns home, and from that time forth, no gift, however great, will prevail with her. Such of the women as are tall and beautiful are soon released. They surely get a consort right away, right? Probably some Jew with a pocket full of gold, silver coins. But others who are ugly have to stay a long time before they can fulfill the law. Some have waited three or four years in the precinct. A custom very much like this is found also in certain parts of the island, Cyprus. Strabo, the Greek geographer, writing 400 years after Herodotus, Strabo corroborates the historian, and he says this, And in accordance with a certain oracle, all the Babylonian women have a custom of having intercourse with the foreigner. The woman going to the temple of Aphrodite with a great retinue and crowd, and each woman is wreathed with a cord around her head. So we see the same description, right? The man who approaches a woman takes her far away from the sacred precinct, places a fair amount of money upon her lap, and then has intercourse with her, and the money is considered sacred to Aphrodite. That's Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 1, Paragraph 20. Now, before one scoffs at these testimonies, don't think they're fantastic, one must also consider verse 43 of the Epistle of Jeremiah, which is often considered Baruch chapter 6 in some apocrypha, publications of the Apocrypha. And here I will quote verses 40 to 44 so that the context is clear, and I'll quote it from Brenton's Septuagint, which includes these books. How should a man then think that they say that they are gods when even the Chaldeans themselves dishonor them? Who, if they shall see one dumb that cannot speak, they bring him and entreat Bel that he may speak as though he were able to understand? Yet they themselves cannot understand, and leave them, for they have no knowledge. The women also with cords about them, sitting in the ways, meaning sitting in the aisles or the paths, burn brand for perfume, but if any of them, drawn by some that passes by, lies with him, she reproaches her fellows that she was not thought as worthy as herself, nor her cord broken. In other words, the women compete with each other for who's going to get picked up by these men. We have a slightly different perspective in the epistle of Jeremiah. Whatsoever is done among them is false. How may it be 
then be thought or said that they are gods. So we see that women with cords attached to them in the epistle of Jeremiah lie with men that pass by in the temples of the idols of Babylon. Three witnesses to what went on in the temples of Baal, one of them from a scriptural writing, two of them from very sound historians. In the King James Study Bible, 1988, copyright 1988 by Thomas Nelson Incorporated and by Liberty University, I'm going to read a footnote which appears at Judges chapter 2, verse 11, which says concerning Ashtaroth, quote, Ashtaroth, or Ashtoreth, 1 Kings 11.5, known also from the literature of Ugarit, which was a Phoenician city, and of Phoenicia, Ugarit was an, a northern Syrian city that's often called a Phoenician city, and of Phoenicia, was a goddess of erotic love and war. She was known elsewhere in the ancient Near East as Ishtar, or Astarte, and they reference several biblical scriptures that mention Astarte, or Ashtoreth, right? The veneration of this goddess entered the Mediterranean world under the name Astarte, and the practices associated with her cult became associated with the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. So we see that the, she, her worship entered the Mediterranean world under the Phoenician form of the name, right? She was called Adardatis at Ashkelon, a Philistine city which later became an Israelite city, I believe. The Canaanite worship rites were carried out not only in temples, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 21 through 27, but on every high hill and under every green tree, 2 Kings 17, 10, and 11. These rites were accompanied by such things as frenzied dances, which we see in 1 Kings 18, 26 to 28, which we will see of the Bacchic rituals later in Greek literature, in, in Greek um, re pagan religious practices. These rites were accompanied by such things as frenzied dances, cult prostitution, both male and female, and at times even by human sacrifice, which I really don't see in the Greek forms of these particular cults. But the cult prostitution at the Greek temples of Aphrodite had a slightly different character than that described by the Greeks at Babylon. Strabo says in discussing the temple at Corinth, which had a, a, a very large temple of Aphrodite. And let me say, because I don't think I repeated in these papers, but I have discussed it somewhere else, that, that there was a verb formed from the Greek noun for Corinth called Corinthiazomahi, which basically meant to be, to be playing the prostitute, right? And, and to be a fornicator. Corinth was a very famous city in the ancient world for its fornication. And here I will quote Strabo concerning this temple at Corinth. And the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, or prostitutes, right? Whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. 
And therefore, they, meaning they were former slaves before they were dedicated to the temple, for the most part. And therefore, it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. Corinth, in other words, according to Strabo, grew rich from prostitution at the temple of Aphrodite. For instance, the ship captains freely squandered their money. And hence the proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Strabo, Book 8, Chapter 6, Paragraph 20. Strabo later discusses a worship of the moon goddess, Maine or Selene. Maine is actually the word that we get mania from, that we get manic from. And, and Selene is, is another Greek word for the moon. Strabo discusses the worship of this moon goddess at a temple at Comana in Armenia. Now, let me say that the Armenians are descended from, primarily from the Scythians, the Israelites of the deportations, who didn't, that, that, they, they, that Armenia was primarily settled by these people, who were also called the Sake, is very evident in many of the names in the area, in elsewhere in Strabo's geography, and the Sake, of course, the, the, the largest and most abundant district in Armenia was called Sakasene, and, and it can be established that the Sake, Sake is the Persian word for the people that the Assyrians called Khumri, which gives us the Greek word Chimerians, that the anglicized form of it is Chimerians. Chimeroi is the Greek. And, and they were the, the children of the deportations of Israel and the ancestors of the Scythians and therefore the Germanic tribes, right? This is what Strabo says of, of Komana and its temple of the moon goddess. Now, Komana is a populous city and is a notable emporium for the people of Armenia. And at the times of the exoduses of the goddess, people assemble there from everywhere, both from the cities and the country, men together with women to attend the festival. And there are certain others also who, in accordance with the vow, are always residing there, performing sacrifices in honor of the goddess. And the inhabitants live in luxury, and all their property is planted with vines. And there is a multitude of women who make gain from their persons, their prostitutes, most of whom are dedicated to the goddess. For in a way, the city is a lesser Corinth. For there, too, on account of the multitude of courtesans who were sacrificed to Aphrodite, outsiders resorted in great numbers and kept holiday. Now, that doesn't mean that the human sacrifice by a, a ritual that kills the person, right? But when a woman is sacrificed to a temple, that means that she becomes a whore for the temple very often. And that can be established in, in um, archaeology and the study of ancient literature. That was Strabo, Book 12, Chapter 3, Paragraph 36. It has been shown elsewhere that both the Corinthians and, and, and I mean when I say it has been shown elsewhere, I'm referring to my own historical essays available on Christogenia, that both the Corinthians and many of the Armenians were among the descendants of the dispersion of the children of Israel. 
and no wonder such practices are found in these places. The Corinthians were also Dorian Greeks, right? Coming from Palestine, that's where the people came from, Strabo also gives a similar account of such temple prostitution among the Persians, and here of maidens who later marry, and says that the Medes and Armenians also shared this custom. He gives that account in Book 11, Chapter 14 of his geography. Surely the cakes made to the Queen of Heaven, which we see in the Bible, were crescent-shaped cakes in honor of the moon goddess, Selene or Maine. They're mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. There's so much of the ancient pagan world that ties right into the Canaanite practices which are condemned in Scripture, which the Israelites followed. We're told the Israelites followed them, and the Israelites were put out of the land. And wherever we see these pagan practices, we can connect those people historically and archaeologically to the ancient Israelites. And I'm talking about the Scythians of Armenia and the Dorian Greeks. And we understand that it was the same Canaanites who brought these practices to ancient Babylon. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were originally Syrians, a people related to the Hebrews. Strabo also indirectly reveals the sexual nature of the Bacchic orgies. Now, it's... it's um. There's not much written about any of these things in the form of descriptions that I know of. I mean, I haven't read a lot of the Greek philosophers, but I have read most of the major historians and poets. Some of the tragic poets describe elements of the Bacchic orgies, the Bacchic rituals, if you'll have it. But the, I, I don't know anywhere where the entire religion and, and its precepts are actually spelled out or why they did these things. But Strabo indirectly reveals the sexual nature of the Bacchic orgies in the Greek worship of Dionysius, who's, they're called Bacchic orgies because Bacchus was another name for Dionysius, right? Where he discusses a similar festival among the Scythians. And Strabo says, there the festival of the Sake, a kind of Bacchic festival, is the custom at which men dressed in the Scythian garb pass day and night drinking and playing wantonly with one another and also the women who drink with them. Strabo, Geography, Book 11, Chapter 8, Paragraph 5. Diodorus Siculus records the claim of a man that the, the and I quote, the Dionysiac rites and the mysteries were simply a means to seduce the wives of other men. That comes from Diodorus Siculus, Book 3, Chapter 65, Paragraph 2 of the Loeb Library Edition. The rites of Dionysius also involved phallic worship, as Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus attest. And, as all the Greek writers would attest, they were identical to the rites of Osiris in Egypt. The name Dionysius being the Greek name for Osiris. 
of the Bacchic rites, the early Christian writer, Minucius Felix, who was a contemporary, I believe, of Tertullian, Minucius Felix says this, the man, and, and he's, he, he's writing about what pagans claim about Christians, right? And he says, the man who fakes up stories of our, meaning Christians, adoring the privates of the priest, is only trying to foist his own abominations upon us. Indecencies of that kind may be countenanced where modesty in any kind of sexual relation or exposure is unknown. But foe, their obscenities are more revolting than modern refinement can stomach or servitude endure. And that comes from Octavius chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 28, paragraph 10 and 11 from the Loeb Library edition. Phallic worship was an element of the worship of Pan and the satyrs. And Diodorus Siculus attests to that in his first book, paragraph, chapter 88. The Roman name for the Greek Bacchic festival of Dionysius was Saturnalia. Saturnalia was a seven-day festival of drinking and orgies, which began on the Roman calendar date of December 17th. A condition called satyriasis, S-A-T-Y-R-I-A-S-I-S, is listed in the American Heritage College Dictionary. It is defined as excessive, often uncontrollable sexual desire in a man. That word comes from the ancient festival of Saturnalia among the Romans and the, the, the ideas of the satyr among the Greeks. So much more can be said of the Greek abominations. Yet one must realize that the abominations of the Israelites learned from the heathens, from the Canaanites, whom they were supposed to slaughter but failed to do. They failed to slaughter them. Those abominations were certainly no different than what was found in Babylon, in Egypt, and in Greece. The Israelites came from Egypt, their forefathers sojourned in Babylonia, and many of the Greeks and Romans and Armenians were actually Israelites of the dispersion. And all of these abominations, the Greeks themselves traced back to either Egypt or to the east, to Phoenicia, to Syria, or to Babylonia in their own writing. Now it may also be evident why when the children of Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor, the god of Moab, they also began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And as a result, 24,000 of them were slain for an act which Paul called fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, if the inhabitants of Jerusalem were worshiping in Canaanite temples, it is evident from the nature of that worship described here that they were necessarily having sexual intercourse with Canaanite men and women, as Jeremiah describes in chapter 2, and as Ezekiel describes in chapter 16 of their respective books of prophecy. For such sects 
was the core of these Canaanite religions. And if they were having sexual intercourse with Canaanites, then they were having Canaanite children. The sin that couldn't be washed off. The pleasant plant that became a strange... a strange vine. There was no pill in those days. Yes, there were sometimes plants that they had the knowledge of committing abortions, but there was no easy access to them. They weren't that well known. They aren't even mentioned in the scripture, but the Greeks knew about them later. So when Ezekiel wrote this, and I quote Ezekiel 16, verses 3 and 45, and say, thus saith Yahweh Elohim unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Thou art thy mother's daughter that loathed her husband, meaning Yahweh, and her children, her real legitimate children. Thou art the sister of thy sisters, talking about Israel that was already deported, which loathed their husbands and their children, your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. This cannot be dismissed lightly. It cannot be seen as if it referred to something merely spiritual or something religious. And when Jeremiah wrote, for my people have committed two evils, this is Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the tree of life, our Adamic race, and have hewed and have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The implications of this must be considered seriously. It was not with vain words that the writer of the Proverbs warned his children. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and the rivers of waters in the streets. If you have children of your own race, they will be abundant. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? So we see by having children, by drinking waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well, well, that's that's the fountain of living waters, your own race, Jeremiah 2.13. Children with the strange woman creates broken cisterns. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? and embrace the bosom of a stranger. For the ways of man are before the eyes of Yahweh, and he ponders all his goings. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, 
and he shall be holden with the cords, there were those cords again, of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go, go astray. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 23. From the King James Version. Now on to part two. In the first essay of this title, Broken Cisterns, part one, which I just read, the sexual nature of certain ancient pagan cult religions was investigated. Namely, those of Baal, who was also called Bel or Belus, and Ashtaroth, who is, as we've seen, also called Astarte or Aphrodite. Hopefully the realization was made from the historian's descriptions of the cults and from the utterances of the Hebrew prophets that by following the so-called religious cults of the alien peoples of Palestine, the Canaanite peoples, it was necessary to have sexual relationships with those people because sex was at the core of those pagan cults. That should be perfectly clear. This was the true nature of the sin of the people of God. This was how ancient Israel played the harlot, literally, not merely spiritually. Just imagine the burden of guilt that modern so-called Christian churches have today for not teaching these things to their people. Today, these things are entirely ignored. They claim it was spiritual adultery that the ancient Israelites committed. They followed strange gods, and they ignored the fact that following strange gods meant necessitated having sex with alien people, fornicating with alien people. I'm going to read Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 through 19 talking about the Israelites taken off in captivity who were going to be taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, right? For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed to Yahweh. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks or, or sticks, they toss sticks in, in order to divine, right? And their staff declares unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills. Their oaks and poplars and elms, under oaks and poplars and elms, just like neo-pagan Europeans do today, the neo-pagan Europeans don't realize that paganism is Canaanite in origin. By practicing paganism, they are really falling into the trap of the real Jews, the Canaanites and Edomites of ancient times. Because the shadow thereof is good, 
they sat. They burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good. The shade. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom nor your spouses when they commit adultery. For themselves, meaning the men themselves, are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that does, do not understand shall fall. What this is saying is that if you are running around with whores and harlots, then how could God punish your daughter for being a whore or your wife for being a whore? If you spend your nights in the strip joint and your wife is screwing around on you, how could God possibly punish your wife when you yourself, you're being a hypocrite if you complain about this, right? It's basically hypocrisy. You can't go around being a whore and expect your family to remain upright. It's not possible. That's what this is saying. Our women are taken away from us because we basically deserve it. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend. Remember that the people of Jerusalem and, and a portion of Judah and Benjamin were not yet taken away, but most of Judah was. And not come ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Bethaven, nor swear. Gilgal and Bethaven were places where there were Canaanite worship was, was being practiced. And swear, Yahweh liveth. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Now Yahweh will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind has bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. We find in the Interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible, and, and I don't usually quote commentaries, but when, when we did Broken Cisterns Part 1, and Clifton had sent it out to his proofreaders, one of the proofreaders pointed out that the, um, the relationship of this comment by Charles Lehman to what we were trying to present, right? And, and it was actually pretty good, so we used it in Broken Cisterns Part 2 when I wrote that. From the Interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible by Charles M. Lehman, on page 455, it makes the following comment concerning Hosea, chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, which I just read. The absurdity of Baal worship. The whole harlotrous system of Baal Fertility rights is utterly ineffectual as well as degrading its purpose to provide fertility for human beings, flocks, and crops. But though the people play the harlot, in other words, i.e., carry on the sexual fertility acts at the shrine, they do not multiply. Despite woman's usual, usual secondary place in ancient society, there will be no double standard, for the men are responsible for the shame of cult prostitution. It is they who will require their daughters to become cult prostitutes, literally holy women. And further on, concerning Hosea 5.7, 
he commented. In their vow worship, they give birth to alien children, the offspring of sexual cult rites. This is what Hosea 5.7 says. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Here, the implications of this, which still affect us to this very day, shall be examined. When confronted with the evidence that Yahweh forbade the Israelites from mixing with the other races, the Old Testament alone, usually being used to demonstrate this, most scholars from mainstream sects reply, well, that's changed. Or that's the Old Testament. And also, the Israelites were told not to do, not to do that for spiritual reasons. And they have similar excuses, but those are the key things that they say. That's their key responses. It shall be made manifest that this command has not changed. But they are right about one thing. The reasons for this are indeed spiritual. And this will be the basic, that this is the basis for Broken Cisterns Part 2. Jeremiah states, and as I just quoted, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out, hewed out for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13. What is a cistern but a vessel? A vessel for holding water or some other liquid. That's what a cistern is. People are often described as vessels, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. Husbands are told in, in, in Peter 3.7, 1 Peter 3.7, to give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Paul is described as a chosen vessel in Acts 9.15. That prophecy is surely complementary to the one found at Revelation chapter 18, and where Isaiah says it 52.11, for which compare Revelation 18.4, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean, go ye out from the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. I didn't say touch no unclean thing, because it's talking about people. Thing was added by the translators incorrectly. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verses six, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh, we are each a temple of Yahweh, and what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, or God, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. The impure being them. The midst of them do not be joined to the impure people, not things as the Bible states, people. 
We who are the temple of Yahweh are we who bear the vessels of Yahweh, which we saw in Isaiah 52.11. Isaiah was not talking about cups and bowls. Yahweh breathed into the nostrils of Adam, our first father, the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. Adam, the first white man, was endowed with the spirit of Yahweh, and this applies to the race of Adam's descendants, where the scripture says, for he called their name Adam, plural, Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 5-2. Nowhere else did Yahweh give to any other race that spirit. And Paul clearly says, Romans 8-9, and if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. And John wrote, all who have been born of Yahweh do not create wrongdoing, because his seed abides in him, and they are not able to do wrong because from of Yahweh they have been born. 1 John 3, 9. And therefore we were told, even so every tree, every good tree brings forth good fruit. A good tree, a good race of people, cannot bring forth bad fruit. That's the word of God. That's why all of our race will see salvation. A corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. That's Matthew 7, verses 17 and 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. When are white Christians ever going to learn that one? They're the words of Yahshua Christ. How many people, even in who claim to be a Christian identity pastors, think that good fruit is going to go into the lake of fire? That is crazy. That is contrary to the word of God. Our genes are the method by which information is transmitted from one generation to the next. Just as the seed of an apple can only produce another apple tree and that of a fig, another fig tree, Christ asks, Matthew seven sixteen, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Well, of course not. Paul says of that seed that it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's 1 Corinthians 15.44. If you're of the right race when you're sown, you will have that spiritual body since the spirit of Yahweh was given to the Adamic race and it was given to no other race. So it is obvious that only Adamic genetics contain the information necessary to raise that spiritual body, that treasure that we have in earthen vessels. Corinthians 4 7. When Adamic seed is joined to the seed of the other races, the result is a broken cistern that can hold no water. For which reason we are either, as Paul describes in Hebrews 12 8, 
sons or bastards. There is not a third alternative. Thus were the bad figs of Jerusalem who mixed themselves with the seed of the Hittites, Amorites, and Canaanites. They were broken cisterns. And so, to Yahweh, they became the degenerate plant of a strange vine. Paul tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, For this is the will of Yahweh, your sanctification. The Thessalonians were among the dispersion, the earliest dispersions of the children of Israel. You are to abstain from fornication. Each of you are to know to possess one's own vessel in sanctification and in honor not in emotions of passion, just as even those nations who do not know Yahweh, meaning the other Adamic nations of the Oikumene, the other Genesis 10 nations who do not know Yahweh, because Yahweh only knows Israel out of the Adamic race. And Paul also advised Timothy of this, and this is important. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of clay, and some things for honor, yet others for dishonor. Therefore, if a man would purge himself of the later, Paul is telling the vessels of gold and silver, the children of Israel who accept Christ, to purge himself of the vessels of wood and of clay. If a man would purge himself of the later, he would become, he would be a vessel for honor, having sanctified himself. In other words, come out from among them and touch not the impure, the impure people. And sanctify himself, serviceable to the master, having prepared himself for all good works. Paul told Timothy to purge himself from the vessels which are for dishonor, not to try to convert them, to sanctify himself by separating himself from them, period. Paul spends much of Romans chapters 9 through 11 comparing the few true-blooded Israelites, those of Jacob, left in Judea, with the Edomites, those of Esau, found there at his time. Paul explains that the Israelites are vessels of mercy, which Yahweh had afore prepared unto glory, as we see in the King James, and that the Edomites are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Remember that Esau had despised his birthright, and Esau took wives of the Canaanites, Genesis 36-2, which greatly disturbed Rebekah, his mother. And Rebekah is recorded to have said, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, Heth being the progenitor of the Hittites. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, 
such as these, which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? Genesis 27:46. Note again that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul states, abstain from fornication to possess one's own vessel, one's body, in sanctification and in honor. As it has been previously asserted here tonight, fornication is race mixing. Jude calls it the pursuit of strange or different flesh. At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, Paul tells the Corinthians this, Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them. He's talking about all our fathers. He tells the Corinthians, because the Corinthians were indeed descended from Dorian Greeks, who came from Doran, Palestine, that can be established historically. The Dorian Greeks came from Doran, Palestine and invaded the Peloponnesus probably around 1200 B.C., long after the, the Israelites had taken over the greater part of the promised land, 1200 B.C. being somewhere in the middle of the Judges period. So Paul tells these Dorian Greek Corinthians that all our fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And he talks about the people of the Exodus who are the ancestors of Paul and the ancestors of the Dorian Greeks as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then he says, Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication, and in one day 23,000 had fallen. This is a clear reference to Numbers chapter 25. And it says, Where Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And Phinehas was rewarded with an eternal priesthood because he slew Zimri, who was a prince of a chief house among the tribe of Simeon. And he slew him for bringing a Midianitish woman unto his brethren, and fornicating with her. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1, 6, 13, and 14. And the law says, If any man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 16, 18, 3, Deuteronomy 27, 21. And so Phineas was not accused of murder but rather he was rewarded for keeping the law. The Midianites, these particular Midianites, as we could tell from contemporary accounts of this same event in Josephus, and later from Numbers chapter 30, these particular Midianites had already been mixing with the Moabites. And that's why we have an episode which contains both Moabites and a Midianitish woman, right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, addressed to the assembly at Pergamos, where Satan's seat is, recalls the same event where it says, 
But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that held the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king of Moab, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. A lot of today's church people would say, oh, that means spiritual fornication. Well, no, because partaking in the Canaanite religion included sexual acts with Canaanites, as we have proven this evening. And Micah 6.5 says, O oh, my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of Yahweh. In Josephus' Antiquities, Book 4, chapters 6 through 12, a passage too long to quote here, the historian goes into great detail in describing Balaam's counsel to Balak and the subsequent sexual seduction of the men of Israel by the mixed tribes of the Moabites and Midianites in Moab. That's why the apostles called it fornication, the pursuit of different or strange flesh. Jude discusses the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. And to these he compares Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange or different flesh. And Jude says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. And there it is also evident that the way of Cain also has something to do with fornication. Paul attributes to these same angels the source of these false religions in his own cryptic way at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 and Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Paul says at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 that the things which the nations sacrifice, meaning the nations of the Adamic world that were pagan, they sacrificed to Demons, and not to God. Demons, in Greek, are spiritual beings which are inferior to God. And Paul says in Colossians 2.18, he talks about the, humili the humiliation that comes with the worshiping of angels. And Paul refers to the fallen angels. That's who he's talking about. The false religions. The Canaanite pagan religions. Ashtoreth, Ishtar, Baal, and, and all the false religions of ancient Mesopotamia came from those fallen angels, as the Book of Enoch and other apocryphal literature explains. And for this, we may also refer to Leviticus 17.7, Deuteronomy 32.17, Joshua 23.7, 2 Chronicles 11.15, and other passages of Old Testament scripture. There's no record in Scripture, in all of Scripture, I don't care what Eli James says, of Yahweh creating the other non-Adamic races. Rather, Yahweh rejects non-Adamic people time and time again. I would assert, by means of logical deduction, 
that the creators of the non-Adamic races are the same fallen angels which Jude discusses. Boldly accusing those angels of fornication. For which reason Judah's Canaanite wife in Malachi 2.11 is called the daughter of a strange god. And Jude goes on to say that these beings, whose descendants are obviously among us today, these are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds without water, clouds without water because they're broken cisterns, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers, they can't possibly produce good fruit. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. The term twice dead may be re- understood by referring to Matthew 23, 7, where Christ tells the certain of the Pharisees and Sadducees that they are whited sepulchers, whited tombs, pretty on the outside and full of dead men's bones. They have no spirit of God in them. Plucked up by the roots, well, go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 13, and see that every plant which Yahweh did not plant. So Yahweh did not plant these people. Every plant which Yahweh did not plant shall be rooted up. Yahweh did not create these people. What is a cloud without water? Dust. For every cloud in the sky consists of little but water vapor mixed with dust particles. And what was Adam before he was endowed with the spirit of Yahweh? Adam was nothing but the dust of the ground. And so a cloud without water is a metaphor for a man without the spirit of Yahweh, a broken cistern that can hold no water. And Jude continues to call these raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, fallen angels, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Surely Jude leaves no room for converting any of them. Peter corroborates Jude fully, and with very similar language in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he discusses that the angels that sinned, Sodom and Gomorrah, at Sodom and Gomorrah, verses 4 and 6, Peter discusses the angels that sinned at verse 4 and Sodom and Gomorrah in 2 Peter 2.6. And he says, But these, his natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Spots they are in blemishes. Just very much like Jude said, that they are spots in our feasts of charity, Peter says, spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Every time you walk into a restaurant and see an alien, you could picture this verse. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, that Negro whispering into the ear of that blonde woman, you think of this verse. Beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, 
which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, these are wells without water. There we go, broken cisterns. Clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness, or maybe the skin of darkness, is reserved forever. Jude's clouds without water, or Peter's wells without water, Jeremiah's broken cisterns that can hold no water, and Paul's vessels for dishonor, or vessels fitted to destruction. None of them can hold water, which is here the spirit of Yahweh endowed upon Adamic man. Race-mixed people can't hold that spirit. That's the bottom line. There's only two groups of people in the entire world, people with that spirit and people without. So the, the word koinonia, which is often translated communion in the New Testament, the word koinonia is partnership, fellowship, or association. The verb koinoneo means to have or do in common with, to have a share of or take part in a thing with another. These definitions are from Liddell and Scott. Now, to limit the idea of communion to some wafer at a weekend and holiday ritual is just pure blasphemy. For the Christian should live his entire life in communion in communion with his brethren. Speaking of the spots and blemishes at our feasts, which we just saw in Jude 12 and in 2 Peter 2.13, and in his own difficult way, in his own difficult to understand way, explaining several things at once, which is what Paul often does, Paul said this to the Corinthians. Indeed, as often as you may eat this bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince of Yahshua until he should come. Consequently, whoever would eat the bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself. And thus from of the wheat bread let him eat, and from of the cup let him drink. For he that is eating and drinking eats and drinks condemnation for himself not distinguishing the body. For this reason, there are many of you feeble and sickly and plenty have fallen asleep. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned with the world. It may be wise to remove from our midst those spots and blemishes, not even to eat with people of other races. Paul told the Philippians, and this is the Christogenian New Testament, because the King James really butchered this one, and all other translations have butchered this verse, and I could stand by every word of the Greek. Paul told the Philippians, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race 
crooked, and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the cosmos or in the world. Philippians 2:14 and 15. And Peter surely agrees where Peter says, and again I'll stand by every word of the Greek, being born from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible. By the word of the living God, the living and abiding Yahweh. 1 Peter 1.23. And so, we see what a broken cistern is. It's a person of mixed race. There are some identity pastors who would apologize for people of mixed races, who would say that it's not their fault. And it's not. But their very existence is a sin, and we must recognize that. And as Paul said, we must separate ourselves from those vessels of wood and clay, and that's the only way we sanctify ourselves. Because Yahweh is going to tear up all of the people of mixed races. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. That means every race that he didn't put here shall be taken away. That's the will of God. So when that day happens, we don't want to be found with those people. So avoid hewing out for yourself broken cisterns. And drink waters out of thine own vessels. And out of thine own springing wells, let not waters out of thine own fountain be spilt by thee, but let thy waters go out into thy streets. Let them be only thine own, and let no stranger partake with thee. Let thy fountain, let thy fountain of water be truly thine own, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let thy loving heart and thy graceful colt company with thee, and let her be considered thine own, and be with thee at all times. For ravished with her love, thou shalt greatly be increased. Be not intimate with strange women. Neither fold thyself in the arms of a woman not thine own. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of God, and he looks on all his paths. That's Proverbs 15. I'm sorry, Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 21 from Brenton's Septuagint. And now we see that a broken cistern is a person of mixed race who can't hold the Spirit of God. And we are not to create them. We also see... that the things that I've been saying this past year about race and about racial origins and about the fate and the destiny of the races of, of this world. I also wrote in Broken Cisterns Part 2 five or six years ago. Perhaps if Eli James had really read my writing before he pursued my communication to work with me, which he did, 
then maybe he would have understood that eventually we were going to clash over this issue. Unless he thought to undermine my, my opinions of the scripture. But I believe that my opinions on the scripture on these issues, just like Clifton's, are on very solid ground and very firm territory. There are no white people who are 10 or 15% Canaanite. They are broken cisterns. They can hold no water. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That's the word of God. A good tree, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. That's the word of God. Therefore, all of the children of the offspring of Israel shall be preserved. That's the word of God. If anybody comes to you trying to tell you that one Israelite can be thrown into the lake of fire, that man is lying about the word of God, and he's probably a broken cistern. That is my opinion. Okay, I would like to have, I know this format is new to us because I haven't been here in 15 months, but if anybody has anything to say on the Saturday night program, they're more than welcome to call in. And after my presentation, I would be more than welcome to have an open discussion. I know that I, I probably should have announced that before this program, and I really didn't think about it. But um, I'll give you a minute, and, and um, if somebody wants to call in, that would be wonderful. And if nobody wants to call in, I'll probably end this program earlier than I had thought to. The, um, the format on Saturday nights will be a short presentation. Tonight was longer than I had planned. I, I, I thought I might only do one segment of my Broken Cisterns paper rather than presenting them both. But when I saw that they were only five or six pages apiece, I decided to, to, to present them both. And, and here we are. I think I had wrote that. Maybe Clifton, if he's listening, well, maybe he could call in. But I think I had wrote those papers in 2004. I could be wrong, and it's possible Clifton won't even remember. I have every piece of correspondence I sent Clifton Emma Heiser from prison, but I have them all in four very large storage bins, and, and um, I'm not in any rush to try to sort all that out because it's probably 10,000 sheets of paper, and if every once in a while I really need something, and I go through it, but... It, it's. It, 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 I would need five file cabinets to sort it all out correctly, and I'm. I'm just not going to do that, right? Next Saturday, I'm going to have Clifton Emmerheiser here, and and um, we'll talk talk for a while about the papers that he's working on right now, which concern the wife of King George III, her name was Charlotte, she was a queen, and she was from North Africa. And for that, a lot of people consider her a Negro. It is not correct to consider her a Negro. The people of North Africa were, at one time, all white people. 
when the Arab conquests and the Muslim conquests came, well, yes, that changed most of those white people to Islam as a religious discipline, but it didn't immediately change their genetics. And it did take many centuries for the white people of Northern Africa to be totally subsumed. And that's what Clifton is investigating now, and he is going to um, present some papers on that very topic. We are going to discuss those papers here next Saturday. I don't know if uh, we have Aaron on the line. I don't know if anybody here can, um, if, if Matt or Cheryl are here to unmute him, that, that would be appreciated. Hello. Thank you, Cheryl or Matt. I don't know who's running the board, either Cheryl or Matt. Hello, Aaron. How's it going, Bill? Hello. How you doing? Doing good. Yeah, I just wanted to call in and uh, give a, my thought on the issue uh, just real quick. Um, you know, one, one thing that I'll look at is, you know, the ancient history surely reflects that Satan's children were busy carrying out one of the main purposes of Satan, which is polluting God's holy seed. You know, the the Antichrists are still alive and well today, and their agenda has not changed one single bit. Uh, you know, the name of this attack is the only thing that has changed, really. You know, back then it was bell worship. Now it's called multiculturalism. Well, well that's absolutely true. And, and multiculturalism has come to us hand in hand with sexual so-called liberation, hasn't it? Yeah, you just look at any of the commercials, the uh, propaganda that's on TV, and you can see it right there in your face. It's blatant. And it's the same exact Canaanite people pushing the same agenda. Yeah, they've always been there, carrying out it, their agenda, yep. It, it's absolutely amazing, but, but most people don't understand this history. Churches, as I mentioned in my presentation, don't tell the truth about what these things meant. Right. And I quoted a study Bible from Liberty University. I quoted some of their comments, which reveals that they do know what these things meant. I didn't quote them to commend them. I may not have been explicit about it, but I quoted them simply to show that, yes, some of these mainstream religious outfits do know what these things meant, but they're not teaching the truth about them to their parishioners. Well, you know... There's uh, some passages from the Bible that I would love to read. Um, I know you've made reference to them, and uh, forgive me if I'm, you know, rereading what you may have already covered, but, uh, you know, they, they stand out a great deal with this particular topic. And one of them is from Isaiah 52:11, where it says, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing, Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. And I know that, that you already touched on that with giving more detail to uh, the thing not really belonging there. But um, well, well, right, and that her, you, you know, Paul, when Paul quoted that, he wrote them in Greek. And he, he wrote the, the unclean is singular, but the King James also added thing, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But I see that word unclean as representing a, a collective noun, a group of people, what, which is very common in Greek. 
Right, and I totally agree. And But just with reading it in its context, it's quite clear what it's really speaking to, because there it ends with, you know, that bear the vessels of the Lord. Well, right. it's obviously speaking to people, and there's others who do not bear the ve- the vessels of the Lord, you know. Who are not well, well, right, those vessels of destruction that don't have the Spirit of our God. Right. And the other passage that I wanted to read, uh, which is Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-eight through 31, it says, And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten our, a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on the edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on the edge. Well, well, yes, and and I put that in, you know, I didn't talk about that last night, because if I try to include every scripture in a presentation, I'll never run out of scripture, right, that's pertinent to something. Well, well, that, I I equate that, the father eating a salad grape in his own teeth, you know, he, he being punished for his own iniquity, that, that, the people that are found at the return of Christ to be race mixing are going to die for it. They are going to be, they are the virgins that don't have oil in their lamps. Well, the thing that I, one of the big reasons I love that passage so much is because it speaks of a promise of a time to come where the sons will wake up and they'll realize what their fathers were guilty of and they'll say no more. And I think um, we're reaching that time where people are starting to understand what the scriptures are truly saying and that it's speaking to the true people and understanding their true identity, um, them being the true Israelites, and then understanding what we need to now do to correct our situation we have found ourselves in. Well, well, that seems to be a very good way to look at it, and, and a way I didn't consider, and, and that's fine. I, I pray it. How, however we're going to correct this, it's going to be corrected. I mean, that's the Word of God, right? We, we are going to prevail in the end. Yep. The, the prophecy is just not there so that we could see the future. It, it's there so that we could look back at what's happened and say, oh, wow, God's right. Well, we better do this. <laughs> That's why the prophecy is there. Yeah. So that we exactly. know that God is true. That is true. And and that passage that you just quoted is in direct relation to the establishment, the, the culmination, the fulfillment of the new covenant. Exactly, yeah, because it goes right into the new covenant that he will uh, have with his people. And, and that practice, that, that passage proves that the, the subjects of the new covenant are the same exact people of the old covenant. <laughs> exactly. That's a great point. There's no, that, that otherwise, it would, it would be prophecy that, that I'm going to put my people away and have another people, but that's not what it says. It says that Israel would always be a nation, not yeah. a church. Exactly, and, and, and within that same context of that passage, I think prior to it, if I remember correctly, uh, refers to uh, Yahweh as the uh, husband, yes. you know, and, and it, is he going to hoard himself around and make a, a, a different covenant with a different people? No, he's going to renew that covenant, and, uh, and he was able to do that with his death. Well, well, that was the only way that he could do it. 
That was the only way that he could keep Israel was if he died. He fulfilled the letter of the law. Exactly. And you know, so now there's nothing to stop him from marrying Israel. Because he died, the law was fulfilled. Exactly. It's a beautiful thing. And and I encourage everyone to uh to really look at that passage and the context and the surrounding passages because it also goes into uh, what you were referring to earlier, that all of Israel will be saved. And because and it goes further into that, speaking about all their iniquities will be forgiven. There are many passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah which make that statement that all of the sins of the children of Israel would be forgiven. And Yahshua Christ said in Matthew that every manner of sin will be forgiven men. Blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. But we know who commits that blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, because they've been trying to mix our race from the beginning. And they're trying to mix our race right now and destroy it in that same manner. And they continually blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And and they will they can't be forgiven. That can't be forgiven. The promotion of race mixing and the destruction of our people can never be forgiven. That's blasphemy to Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is the spit I, I mean the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Yahweh, but it's also very clearly used to describe that spirit of sanctity which the children of Israel are to take upon themselves in separation to be the separate people that God wants them to be. So, so um, that Holy Spirit has a multifold meaning. Well, thanks for calling, Aaron. If, if anybody else would call in, that, that might be interesting, but it doesn't look like anybody's rushing to. Okay, we're going to end the program here. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I will be here next week on Friday with Matthew chapter 26, The Jews Killed Yahshua Christ. Make no mistake about it. They bear all the guilt. And I will be here next Saturday with Clifton Emmerheiser and a discussion of um, some of the vandal history and, and the white history of North Africa. And, and thank you, Aaron. Praise Yahweh. Good night.